how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode is brought to you by IronJohnGear.com. In between your creative pursuits, make sure to check out Iron John Gear for top apparel, footwear, fitness items, outdoor supplies, sports gear, and much more. Visit the website for top deals on things like lanterns, backpacks, tents, snow clothing, bomber hats, sunglasses, fishing gear, and more. Visit ironjohngear.com today and save money on your next adventure. In addition to Iron John Gear, make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. Writer Ed Sullivan got started writing jokes in college, which eventually led him to Laverne and Shirley and The Gary Shandling Show. As he moved into film, movies like Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Men in Black, and Now You See Me have conquered the box office. In this interview, Sullivan discusses changing with the audience, sticking with a project longer than anyone else, the myth of inspiration, and his latest project, Mosaic. The app and miniseries for HBO was directed by Steven Soderbergh and stars Sharon Stone, Garrett Hedlund, and Paul Rubens. I think when I look back, I I wanted to write since I was at camp in third grade. I remember writing skits, but I never realized, even as a teenager, that you could actually make a living as a writer. So when I went to UCLA... Even though in high school I wrote jokes all the time and I picked as my, quote, art field uh, writing because all my friends were super talented um, actors and singers and stuff like that in high school, I picked writing because it was the only one no one else did, which I think was my way of telling my – and I told myself – you're only a writer because your other friends do other things. I told myself I, I wasn't really trying to write because I really wanted to, but when I think back on it, I knew I wanted to do it all the way back to third grade, you know, as we were saying. Um, so I went to UCLA, and I never really figured you could be a professional at this. So I majored in economics and um, slowly got drawn into the UCLA Comedy Club, which was a group of student comedians performing student stand-up comedy that, you know, everyone wrote, and then would hire a professional headliner to come do the show as well. So you'd have, like, seven or eight students doing seven or eight minutes each, and then a professional doing, like, 45 minutes or an hour. 
And I joined, right around the time that I joined the UCLA Comedy Club, I also went to the comedy store in Westwood and watched a bunch of stand-up comics. And one of the comedians performing was Jimmy Walker, who was known as JJ in, in Good Times, a TV show. And I had overheard another comedian, a comedian named Jimmy Alex, saying to somebody else, Jimmy Walker uh, actually takes writers. And so after Jimmy Walker set, I went up to him and I was like, do you, do you, are you looking for writers? And he said, we're always looking for writers. And he patted me on the head and um, gave me a phone number of a guy named Gene Bronstein. And I remember writing from the dorm room, I writing a letter typed up in my typewriter on onion skin paper, which was the easy erase paper, <laughs> typing paper. Um, Typing up, you know, dear Mr. Bronstein, enclosed, please sign 25 jokes for your and Mr. Walker's perusal. It was, you know, super formal and kind of lame. But um, I don't know. A few weeks later, I get a letter back with a check for $100 saying, keep writing, you know, and it was awesome. So I started writing jokes and then doing stand up at UCLA with the UCLA Comedy Club. And interestingly, there were some really talented people in that club, like, my friend Ryan Rowe, who I write with a lot, who's just brilliant. Shane Black, you know, who directed Iron Man 3 and wrote Lethal Weapon and, you know, super successful writer and director who, you know, he was in the comedy club. There was a lot of really interesting and talented people in that group. Uh, we started doing stand-up. And then uh, by, I guess, late in my sophomore year, one of the comedians that was headlining the comedy club was Gary Shanley. And he saw my set, and he asked me if I wanted to write with him for him. And I was thrilled. Yeah, of course. I'd love to. So then I developed a relationship with Gary where basically you know, he was like a mentor to me. And my, by my senior year, while I was an economics major, because by my junior year, I was, I was writing plays. I was never allowed in the screenwriting department at UCLA I was, because I wasn't a, screen, a film major, so I could never take a, a screenwriting class, but I was allowed to take some playwriting classes, and I had some plays produced my junior year, and by, and by then I knew I really wanted to write, but I didn't, again, know I really would be able to write, so I, was, I declared my major as economics. But senior year, I had a play produced at UCLA that... Um, and Gary Shanley had a friend who was producing television, and he invited me to meet this friend of his, and I invited this friend to come see my play at UCLA, and the guy hired me on Laverne and Shirley. So I was a senior in college, and I was a very impressionable and very freaked out by the whole process, and um, it was a really interesting and, and stressful experience. But, yes, at that moment, in that moment in time, I was actually the youngest member of the writer's guild, or at least I was told that by someone in the writer's guild. It seems like very early you were able to possibly mimic other comics. Did you find, how did you kind of come about that? Did you just study their work and how did you write those jokes for people? Whether you're writing for an actual comedian or whether you're writing for a character in your head or whether you're writing for an actual actor or whether you're writing for an imagined character that some actor will inhabit at some point, it's the same process. It's it's being able to find their point of view, to empathize with them, to start to abide within their imagined emotional body, to feel them, and, gra- and gradually you begin to be able to think in a way that mimics them. I wouldn't say I was a mimic. I wasn't a performer. As a, I wasn't a mimic as a performer. I'm not a good actor, and I'm not a good mimic. But as an emotional mimic, 
I think I have that innate ability. Uh, I can I can mimic the emotional life of someone, and from there, the words follow. And uh, I think people can always think that writing is an activity of the brain. I, I maintain that writing is an activity of the body, and the brain follows behind and transcribes. So you started with comedy, and I would say the bulk of your work at least has comedy in it. What what advice might you have for someone who has maybe sold their first or second film? Like, how did they? How did you have such a career and and keep going and, and write for this amount of time in Hollywood? You always, as a human being in the world, have to reinvent yourself. Period. Regardless of whether you're a writer or an artist of any kind, just as a human being, the world starts to change. You start to change, or the world changes. And you change, you grow, you mature, you do not stay the same every seven years. Every cell in your body is different than it was seven years ago. You know, There's a complete refresh that's happening biologically at all times, and I think emotionally you're evolving. The problem is creatively sometimes people don't evolve. Creatively people tend to think, quote, this is what I do, quote, and this is what I'm going to continue to do. You wouldn't want to be the same person you were 10 years ago, just in life. And yet we get very rooted to the person we were creatively any number of years ago. Because it's scary to change, especially when a lot of your uh, esteem and a lot of how other people view you is rooted in how you believe they perceive you. You want to kind of keep that going, especially if you've had success. Now, if you've had not a lot of success, you can get very jaded and very cynical and it's hard to maintain going when you've had a lot of failure or a lot of not success or mixed success and failure. So that will keep you from, from going forward. The key to me is re, is remaining resilient, remaining porous. As my friend Tally Corey, who's an incredibly talented writer, said to me just last week, it's like you have to have the thickest skin in the world and you have to have the thinnest skin in the world at the same time. You know, you have to be, you have to adapt And it has to be organic. You can't try to change because you think the world is changing and you're trying to second-guess the world and create something that you think the changing world is going to want. You have to change and you have to be flexible and change what you're doing because you too are changing, but you're changing in lockstep with the world that's changing around you and your own actual age and age of life that is changing. You can't be rooted in previous conceptions of yourself as a person or as an artist. And so often we are. So for me, it's a combination of a really willful attempt to constantly reinvent myself, but also some luck. And also a part of my personality that doesn't quit, even though it really wants to, when things don't work the way you want them to work. And I've had a lot of those. I've had a lot of career disappointments. I've taken a lot of punches and they hurt bad. And hitting the ground hurts bad. And it's it's hard to get up again. But, you know, you combine a dedication to change with an unwillingness to quit and a kind of patience with each project itself, meaning I'll stick with a project until it's working way longer than a lot of other people will stick with the project. Also, I will put something down, start something else, and then 
return to that thing with fresh eyes later. I have all the patience in the world for things, so that also has helped me in terms of longevity. The other is I've learned to, in my early 30s, to abandon my defensiveness and my, um, my ego, which would bristle when I would get feedback or notes, especially negative notes. I've learned to be respectful of the notes that come in and view them as actual gifts or, you know, people help, actually helping me see the things that are flaws that I wasn't able to see. I think sometimes I've bent over too much for people, but that's just about me adjusting the pendulum swing on that. Um, you know, and I think people, I think also I have not witnessed a lot of people who get funnier as they get older, I, I see some people who can be incredibly funny still as they're older, but I, but I feel like it's really hard to be truly, truly funny. And as you get older, partly because culture is shifting and references are shifting and point of view is shifting, partly because comedy is about being in the, um, let's say, unestablished class. And as you get older, you either have to accept that you're now an adult living an adult life or you have to kind of adopt a stance of being an outsider. And sometimes as a, you're a parent and you have kids, you don't want to be that angry up all night outsider to be funny, just to be funny. Having said, having said that, I, I was aware of that in my mid-30s and said I have to begin the process now of retooling my factory so that by the time I'm old enough, where my sense of humor is not nearly as sharp as a lot of other people's, I have other skills so that I can transition into other forms because the last thing I want to do is be an old guy begging for scraps, asking his friends to toss him bones. You know, I, I really want to be able to be doing things that are vital and emergent and interesting and, and creative, and I want to actually have something to add to the conversation. And I don't want my age to be a liability. I want it to be an asset at all times. And that's a small target to hit. And I had to start it pretty early and I had to start it while I was still young. And I failed a, a significant amount of times in my attempt, but those failures really taught me a lot of lessons. And thankfully I kept going till I got to a place where finally it was starting to actually pay off both creatively and emotionally and professionally. So in terms of taking a new challenge, um, we'll go into the finer details in a, in a moment, but Mosaic is going to be the new series on HBO. It's a limited series. There's also an app involved. How did you first kind of get involved with this project? Four years ago, Casey Silver and a guy named Dan Siegel called me and asked if I wanted to have breakfast to discuss something that they couldn't tell me about over the phone. The only caveat was I had to sign an NDA to have breakfast, and I thought this better be really good omelets. Um, I signed it, sat with them. They said, hey, we're working on an IP. We have Steven Soderbergh involved. Um, they had spoken to Steven about a year earlier. We're trying to do a little 10-minute prototype. Would you be interested in throwing some ideas around with Steven about it? And I said, heck yeah, for sure. So I consulted a little on the script that Steven had written and was continuing to write, just a 10-minute thing, which he then shot uh, in a day, and it was a um, an experimental prototype called The Departure, and it was a little 
story that took place in the lobby of a hotel with different points of view. It was really for him to get a feel for, will this work? And then after he put it together, he thought, you know, I think it's going to work. And he, um, then he said, what do you think? You want to do a longer one? And I said, yeah. And we, so about a year later, it was, we met initially in November of 2013. So in November of 2014, we met up again, decided on doing a murder mystery that's set in a small resort town. And starting around January, mid-January, I started working on it. And uh, that was it. We were there. And we started, you know, mid-January, we started breaking story. I was living in L.A. I was flying back and forth uh, between L.A. and New York. Uh, pitching to Steven what I'd come up with each week. He'd give me notes and feedback. We'd brainstorm. I'd go back to L.A., come back the next week. And uh, did that until June. June, we had it all up on a board, up outlined. And he said, I think I know enough about what this is, but I can commit to shooting it in November. And I said, wow, I've got to write. It's June, and I have to write. And by the way, this whole script ended up being 500 pages, but I have to write 265 pages, which is the first part we were shooting. By October, all right, here I go, man. And I just dove in. I just dove in and focused and got about 265 pages. I got everything done that we're shooting. And then as we started shooting, we started coming up with all sorts of ideas and adding stuff. So then I added another uh, 100 pages during production. Then we took a hiatus. We, we initially shot the uh, present tense stuff the stuff that takes place in present day in the thaw in November, December. And then we took the hiatus of a couple of months and the actors gained or lost weight and grew facial hair or lost it. And then we shot the past tense stuff in the snow in February and March. And by that time I'd written the other 165 or so pages and we were done. And then we did post and post production took quite a long time because we were again, learning a lot as we went. So th- that begins with Olivia Lake, played by Sharon Stone, but the series actually begins with Joel and Nate. I've seen the photos of you like in front of some whiteboards with a ton of sticky notes in a pattern. Did you kind of did you outline both of those at the same time, or did you decide later what was going to be in the app together, or how did that work? We outlined, The first thing I did was outline and write the scenes in or handwrite the a rough version of the scenes in chronological order in chronological order of the events themselves. Meaning Olivia moves to town or Olivia tells a story in her book, it gets her a lot of money, she buys a property, she moves, you know, moves in, she's well famous in the town, she she's had these relationships, she falls in love with somebody, you know, et cetera. I just did it in order in the order that the events happen. I did that with every single character. We put that up on one actually on two giant walls in the office. And then I actually hand wrote a lot of it right on the whiteboards. You know, it scribbled all over the whiteboards. It looked really kind of like an insane person. And then transferred that to index cards, which we then magnet, you know, magnetic, uh, magnetically, we, we applied with magnets. This is a magnetic dry erase board. And we, we sort of, you know, tacked them up with the magnet in, in order. And then we would, take scenes from one wall, from the imagination wall, let's call it, and put it in the, on the other wall in story order until we had a story that felt good to us. And that's what you saw. That was what we ended up with. And that board, which was the outline for the app version of it, at least initially, was 
the board that photo was taken in the in the room between Steven's editing room and my writing room in the condo complex where we stayed in Utah. That was the board that we checked every night to see what we were shooting the next day and make sure that we knew what we were doing. That was uh, and that that wasn't the final structure. We actually started the movie the app version of the thing, not movie, I wouldn't even call it that. We started whatever it is, the app version of it, initially with a very cold opening of Joel Hurley, Garrett Hedlund's character, is in Louisiana, uh, working in this alligator hunting place. A woman shows up and says, you're the only guy who can help me, and my brother is innocently put in, my brother's innocent, he was wrongly put in prison for a murder he didn't commit, and I need you to go back to something you've got to help me, and he's like, I vowed I'd never go back there, I'm not going to help. And she says, you're the only one who can help, and then immediately the audience had to choose, so I go with her or him. And what we found was people were not invested enough in the story or characters to make a, an informed choice, and it was causing more anxiety than, than delight. So we, um, so we, after a lot of trial and error, we ended up taking uh, one of the big long lines that you see in that board that's way over to the right of the board, meaning a lot of it came toward the end and moving it to the front giant restructuring where we took Olivia's story, which initially you only found out as you went forward, but taking that and put it, put it at the beginning, putting it at the beginning actually changed everything. It changed how invested you were You become very invested in Sharon Stone's character and before she's murdered and the questions of who did it and why it become more interesting and more resonant. Then we also knew we had to do a linear version of it. We were told in order to get a little bit more money to build out the tech, we made a deal with HBO to provide them with a linear cut as well that they could air in a sort of more traditional broadcast way. That decision was made before we actually started shooting. So Stephen was shooting knowing that we're going to be doing this both as an app as well as a, a linear version. We didn't have the linear version blocked out yet, though. We just trusted that we had done enough story work, that we knew the characters well enough that we could uh, could make it work. And to, to be honest, it's a testament to the brilliance of Stephen that he was able to refashion it in such a way in post that it provides an entirely different experience of viewing the same story, but it's a very different experience watching it in a more objective manner. And by objective, I mean you, the audience, see things that the characters don't see because of the nature of juxtaposition. You see one scene from one character's point of view, you see another from another's, you see another from the third. You now, as the viewer, know more than two-thirds of the characters in the story at any given moment. Whereas in the subjective linear version, you're actually learning things as the characters are learning. And that was a very, 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 very different experiences. Very different. And it was a massive lesson in storytelling for me, too, which was also awesome. As a writer, knowing that, you know, some of your scenes may be mixed up as far as the order that they're portrayed or the order that they're watched, did you have to rethink anything or really make sure that each scene had a beginning, a middle, and an end to it? Did you have to... Did you go back and affect your writing in that way? That's a really good question. Uh, the beginning, middle, and end thing is a tricky one because most writers fall into traps by having their scenes have beginnings, middles, and ends because 
scenes don't exist on their own. They exist in sequences, and sequences exist in larger and therefore most scenes are written way longer than they need to be because a writer thinks the scene has to be beginning, middle, and end. What we did do was track which points of view we were telling the story from and noted to ourselves, and this took a lot of work for us, especially the night before production, this scene is from Joel's point of view and it exists on this sequence and it's truncated. It's truncated to be these three or four lines, whereas on this other sequence, it's petrocene and it has a beginning and a middle. And so, what's the what's the beginning of Joel's scene is actually the middle of Petrus, and then on Nate's, it's actually the end of Nate's scene. So, so some scenes needed beginnings, middles, and ends. Some scenes needed um, only. Uh, Beginnings and some needed only middles, so to speak, and and so the so, but more importantly to your question, um, uh, sec, sorry, um, more importantly to your question, um, what we did that really helped us out was had a deep and rich sense of every character's history and backstory and direction they're heading in so that every character was rich and hopefully would be worthy of a movie into themselves. That's the thing that writing this form really instilled into me, just the importance of that. And that really helped me in terms of um, uh, long-term, you know, uh, benefit, so to speak, of like a main film school that was, you know, called Mosaic, which was it just it was like going through this incredible rigorous obstacle course um that just brought out a lot of muscles that I hadn't had the opportunity to flex before or at least in a long time and that was just amazing. It's such a great experience. There is a, a character named Eric and he is describing Olivia Lake, which is Sharon Stone's character, but his quote about her, um her writing, I guess, the book happened once in forty five seconds, twenty six years ago. While we're talking about writers, do you um, like? Do you kind of agree that there are possibly two types of writers: some that really have that muse or whatever it is, and some that really have to work it out like a math problem? Uh, this may be more particular with children's books, ideas, or maybe songwriters. But do you kind of see that in two types of writers, or are you definitely more of the second type that really has to solve it? Personally, I believe there's two types of writers: people who believe in the myth of inspiration and uh, actual professional writers. What I mean by that is, I think inspiration, I think waiting for inspiration is an excuse, actually, to not really dig. Inspiration isn't just sitting there for you to discover on the sidewalk of life as you're going past, like it's a you know, dollar bill that fell out of somebody's pocket. Writing something that feels inspired comes from a lot of work, deep work, deep digging, mulling, doing a lot of surface work that doesn't seem to get anywhere, having an interesting point of view, constantly honing your craft, optimizing, capitalizing on your mistakes, learning, figuring out how to dig deeper, how to have a relationship between you and what you create. 
and how that relationship be dynamic and evolving. Inspiration, I think it's bullshit to be totally honest. Inspiration is a flash. I believe it can exist. I believe it can happen once in a while. It happens to people. And I believe that it's awesome when it happens and it's great to capitalize on it for sure. And part of the gift is being able to actually recognize inspiration when it happens, if it happens. But waiting for inspiration is a complete crock. Waiting for inspiration is bullshit. Inspiration is there and you get inspired. But the truth is inspiration happens because you've done deeper work. Inspiration is the result of deeper work. You know, waiting for inspiration to write is silly. I mean, it's like, it's like going through life just knowing that the, you know, I don't know, that the, the romance of your life is just around the corner and you miss everything else that happens in between. Um, it's, it's, um, so I don't, I don't buy it. I do believe that there is such thing as inspiration. I just think the fact that you can only write when inspired is just an excuse to not actually have discipline. There's a wonderful quote that I'm going to butcher by Philip Pullman, and I'm only paraphrasing it, and I'm sure I'm paraphrasing it badly. Philip Pullman wrote The Golden Compass, and, you know, yeah, he's just a brilliant writer. And he said something along the lines of, um, my job is to write as though it's inspired every day, even when I don't have inspiration. You know, that's, that's the bad, like, so polarized to quote, but it's, that's the idea, and I, ha- I completely agree with that. You know, it's, it's day-to-day grind work where you are constantly trying to create a safe enough space inside your own emotional world where you can play, not be fearful, where you can be comfortable with what, what I would call not knowing space, where you can be comfortable with um, not having a solution and living that for a long time while still moving forward, uh, working that state so that you eventually solve your, your problem and then move to the next. Inspiration, inspiration implies it falls from the sky into your brain, and I believe it comes from it comes from deep in you and up. I think it's the wrong, the wrong trajectory to believe that inspiration just kind of drops on you like it, it can be used. In the first ad I saw for this, uh, for Mosaic, it was kind of a secret at the time, even then, even though, even like a month ago, I want to say it was a 50 second ad and it was already kind of advertising the idea of rewatchability with the series. Is this like hypothetically the future of HBO or at least, you know, are there other projects in the work works right now? We're definitely working on other projects. Um, and they're actually one with HBO. I'm not involved with, but a really talented writer named Carrie Kraus is working on this, which K-A-R-R-I-E-C-R-O-U-S-E Kraus, Carrie Kraus. She's just super great and super talented. And that's, um, that's a project that they've set up at HBO, Stephen and Casey. And um, I'm working on another one that uh, I wrote last year. With I, I'm still writing and almost done with it, but I've been working on it all year. Um, in partnership with Stephen and Casey again, and another one uh, heading into this new year that we've been working on together. Um, so I think there's definitely a future in it. I don't think it's the future. In other words, I think I think it's a new path of storytelling that is available to people and could be really fascinating if you have the right story. I don't think it works for every story, but I definitely think there's rich, rich, rich terrain, and we were only scratching the surface in those days as we were learning about it as we went. 
Has your, I mean, with, with this show and, and, and just the way television has changed in the last 10 or 15 years, has your writing changed in the fact that you know fans are watching a lot closer than they used to in terms of maybe Easter, Easter eggs or callbacks or tributes, things like that? Writing changes for a lot of reasons. Like every reason in the book, my writing changes, you know, just because I'm changing and I, I'm trying to stay uh, alive as a writer. And I mean alive, like, I don't mean survive. I mean actually stay vital and, and engaged and excited and um, challenged, you know. And, and so my writing changes for all those reasons. And I view it more like it's changing with an audience changes i'm just i'm just changing along with them i'm not changing because of them and i think that's a very 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 big distinction i'm really they're not doing anything to affect me there's nothing they're doing that is making me do anything differently i'm on the path with them in other words i view writing as a relate a relationship filmmaking is a relationship it's a relationship between the filmmaker or the artist and their work that they're creating, but it's also a relationship between filmmakers through their work with the audience. And if your arms are open and you're saying, let's all go on this journey together, you're actually changing with the audience because you're already thinking of them while you're creating. You're just, you're creating something to communicate with them. If you've got them in mind, you're not pandering to them. You're just thinking about them in the same way that you think about your child when you're telling a story to your child or your coworker when you're relating a story to your coworker, you know, or your friend. You know, you, you tell the story differently depending on who you're telling it to. And if you just hold that in mind, you're going to evolve as they evolve. As your child grows... The way you tell them a story grows. It's different when they're three to when they're seven to when they're 12 to when they're 16 when they don't want to hear anything you have to say until they're 23 again when they're actually listening to you again. Uh, I just got one more for you. If there's anything else you'd like to share about Mosaic and also if you have any um, details about for, for your fans who go way back about the, the announcement of the new Bill and Ted movie that's coming out. A lot of people ask me, should I watch the app first or should I watch the linear broadcast version first? And I actually don't know the answer to that. I think each provides different pleasures. And um, I think if you have trouble choosing between one or the other, go ahead and watch the HBO version first because the app version is all about making choices. So why put yourself through that anxiety? But if you're uh, more interested in a subjective experience and it's a little bit more tactile that allows you a little bit more of the detours into a little call the facts, I would say do the app. Um, don't do them at the same time because they're structured entirely differently, so they might it might throw off your enjoyment of the narrative. Um, so that's all I would say about Mosaic. And regarding Bill Ted, it's actually not coming out. It's, we are working and have been working for a decade to try to make the Bill and Ted movie. We, we wrote it on spec. Alex Keanu, where Alex and Keanu were involved with Chris Matheson and I, Chris and the other writer of Bill and Ted developing a story starting 10 years ago that we thought would be meaningful and deep and funny and reflect where we as humans were and where, you know, they as actors were. And we wrote a script, uh, again, on spec, not because it was a big business, but the script is, the material is owned by one place. We did it. We did it so we could have as much creative uh, freedom as we, as we could to make it. We really wanted to make it. And we have been trying for a long time to get 
a finance report because what we always come up against is people want to make Bill and Ted as a reboot. You know, let's start it again. And uh, what we want to do is use our partners, Alex and Keanu, who inhabit these characters so beautifully, and tell the story of Bill and Ted as middle-aged men uh, in their journey to regain their Bill and Tedness. And um, it's a comedy. It makes us laugh like crazy. We loved writing it. And we, I believe in the story so much. The fans of Bill and Ted to me are like family. And I can't tell you it's the most wonderful thing, but like everywhere I go, I've written other movies that have had sequels and big franchises, and none of them get the same response as the Bill and Ted movie when they say, we might be doing another Bill and Ted movie. You can get it, you know. People ask me that more than anything else I've ever been involved with. Men in Black, Now You See Me, you name it. It's like, I get that question incoming to me every single day. And now that I've been doing press for a day, like 20 times a day. Which, by the way, I love. I'm, I love that because I love those characters and there's a spirit to them that I find infectious. Always made them an absolute joy to write. Anyway, the answer is, we. it's not finance yet. We have... Alex and Keanu, we have the director, Dean Caruso, who directed Galaxy Crusty, and Soderbergh is involved as a producer with us. We have a wonderful creative team. Scott Kruitz is producing, you produced the first two movies. We're all excited about that, but we do not have the financing together, although we are in talks with people, and I really hope to be able to have good news soon. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter where you also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook, How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.